1: join with me in Second Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Last week for just as a matter of review, we saw that there were three things that Christians needed to know about suffering. Three things that Christians needed to know about suffering. The first was that suffering for Christ is to be expected for all those that deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. So it's an expectation that all of us, and we would probably go, if you're not suffering for the cause of Christ, then it's probably time to take a look in the mirror. The second thing we saw about suffering, that suffering for Christ mirrors and extends the ministry of Christ. So when you suffer for his sake, then you are mirroring, you're looking like Christ and you're extending his ministry in the here and now. And then the third thing we saw is that suffering is an opportunity to trust and relax and praise God. We saw also that not only comes uh, suffering, but God has promised that with any suffering that there would come comfort. And through things that we learned there is that comfort comes from God. And God comforts us in order to allow us to share that comfort with others. To put it in a a nutshell, we realize that God is sovereign and providential over both suffering and comfort. Both will come in your lives for the cause of Christ. There was the warning because there is some suffering that comes because not of Christ, but because of our own sin. And we saw the warning in Peter where he warned them, do not suffer as an evildoer or someone because of the consequences of your sin. God has not promised to give you comfort in those situations until we repent. And even then, the comfort is not as sweet as it might have been as we suffer for the cause of Christ. But not only that, many times we seek comfort in the things that are not of God. So not all comfort will come from God in our sin. So in that, God has called us to suffer and to find comfort in the, his cause. Now, as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw now Paul is riding dilemma. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit more of a review from two weeks ago because you need to kind of understand what's going on behind the scenes here if you're going to be able to understand truly and fully what's happening in this passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. You must remember that Paul was a man, he was an apostle who suffered many things, and we learned that last week. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten with rods, beaten with whips. He was uh, uh, tormented. He was in riots. He was abused. Uh, He was, uh, as I said, shipwrecked and adrift for days. And just as Jesus was a man who was acquainted with griefs and sorrow, so was Paul. He suffered as a good soldier in the service of his King. And Paul's sufferings in the minds, though, as the Corinthians saw the suffering of Paul and the things that he went through, in their mind, his sufferings meant that God had withheld his blessings from Paul's ministry. And we talked about how that's still prevalent today is many times you'll see many people will say, well, God must be blessing his ministry. Look at how many people he has. Look how much money they're bringing in. Look at all the children's ministry. Look at all that they have. God must be blessing blessing them. The problem is, is when we use man's standards to see God's blessing, many times we go astray. For many of those very same ministries that we say have God's blessing, are not preaching and teaching God's gospel, but yet they're actually teaching something totally different. So we must be careful of how we lay God's blessings on those things of man that we approve and disapprove. And so they disapproved of Paul. They see this sufferings and said, God must have taken his hand away from him. We saw that in Job, when Job was was tattered and lost all things his body covered with his sores his wife even saying just curse God and died as soon as his friends saw him they said that the Bible says that they wept and then they argued with him how God had taken him God is no longer in their lives so we must be careful of that but that's their mindset it's our natural mindset Problem is, is if the messenger is discredited, so is his message. So Paul is sitting there in the service of his king, faithfully attending to the duties of the church, living out a faithful life to God, and they were discrediting his message because of his life. We need to be careful with that. However, they did not understand that all of Paul's suffering all that he went through, the beatings, the stonings, the riots, all the things that happened to him was not because of God relieving his hand from him, but was because of Paul's faithfulness to God. Hence why, as we said last week, for those faithfulness is actually, or faith, or a mark of faithfulness, I should say, is actually suffering. Suffering is a mark of of someone who is faithful in the cause of Christ. Now this had had to be very uh, um, disheartening to Paul. So I want you now to put yourself in the, in, the, in the mind of Paul. As you're hearing this going on, and these people that you love and care for, this church that you started, all of a sudden, they're looking at you and they're saying, God's hand is not on you, Paul. So now we're going to bring into question everything you've ever wrote and you ever taught. How hurtful this must have been to Paul. As I shared with you before in this, before before he wrote this letter, Paul had actually visited them and they had treated him very, very badly and he had to retreat in humbleness and shame. For Paul and for any apostle A good reputation is important. All he had was his message and his name. And here it was being discredited. A good reputation is important not only to Christians as in Proverbs 22. It tells us a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. But it's especially important to an elder, as Paul had instructed Timothy, that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. But here Paul stands in disgrace, not of his own making, but through the eyes of those who were wrongly applying what they believed was truth. In this letter, as we go through, we're going to find that the Corinthians have cast suspicion on Paul and his integrity. They have scoffed at his preaching skills. Oh, Paul, you write great letters, but when you stand up and speak, you halt. You don't speak well. And for those of you who might be more familiar with Paul, and we may see this a little bit more as a letter, Paul was not someone who was was um, tall and well-dressed and and looked good. You know, we kind of like that of our leaders, don't we? I think this is something that's probably been shown to me in this election more than any others. We're not talking so much about the issues. And many times in the polls, it's not even the character that comes up. The word that you hear about is likability. Who do you like more? As if likability, as important as that may be, may be the only thing that you may vote for. He was not tall and, and ruggedly handsome. He gives me hope, by the way. But Paul was someone that says when you look at him, You probably despise. Remember, Paul was beaten. What did he say? Several times with whips, several times by rods. He didn't have a lot of food. Many times he slept out at night. He was probably hunchback because he didn't take money from the church. He would spend the time that he was not preaching and praying and teaching, taking big old hard things of leather and cloth and sewing them together to make tents. His hands were probably gnarly and thick and scarred. He was not someone that you would look and say, boy, he must be a great leader and a great speaker. So probably a man who would come and stoop up and have to hold on to the podium even to stand for any length of period of time. May not even be able to open up his head enough for you to see. It says that his eyes were so bad, many believe he had some type of disease in his eyes and that would be something that you would not even want to look at. So they scoffed at him personally. They scoffed at his skills. And they challenged his authority as an apostle. This is what you need to know as we go in through as this Paul writes this. We need to understand what's going on in Paul's mind and his heart as he pens this letter. See, Paul wants the church of Corinth to reevaluate him and their opinion. He wants to remind them that he's their Father in Christ, as he wrote to them in the first letter, where he says, you, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I nursed you, I birthed this church, I built it up. What he wants them to understand, that the Corinthian church themselves... Are Paul's boasts in the Lord. Not all the victories he had, not his beatings, not all those things. He's proud of them, and they should be proud of him in return instead of belittling him and challenging him. Paul wants him to understand that they, the church, will be the ground of his boasting before the Lord. What you need to know as we go on through this is that the Corinthians. Just as I believe Orange Countians, many here today, struggle with pride, and boasting of achievements were very common. What was that? What's the word? What's that? What's that term in sports? The uh, where you, you, you're, you're trash talking. That's the word I'm looking for. Trash talking. You know, look at me. Look what I've done. Remember, Corinthian Church of Corinth was very much like America that many of them would come as, as freed slaves, former slaves. Many of them came with nothing. The, 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 the city of Corinth was a place where if you had a strong back, good hands, and was willing to work, that you could build yourself up. Remember that old phrase, pull your boots up, you, you know, you got there by, the, by your bootstraps? This was the Corinthians people. So to achieve something and say, look what I got. We do the same thing, right? You know, we make so much money, we get a better house, a better car. Better clothing, we do we we boast of our achievements. Well, that's their mindset. The second thing to understand that a group of rivals have wormed their way into the Corinthian church and they portrayed Paul in a negative light. And we see that with many people, don't we? And others to build ourselves up, what do we do? We tear others down. Have you Have you seen that happen? Have you been one of those people that people have tore down? just to make or maybe you've done the verse. We both do both, right? And Paul in this letter is not defending himself as much as he's trying to re- reinstall confidence in them of his own ministry as a father. And that's where we find ourselves as we go to first or excuse me, second Corinthians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. Let's read that together paul writes for our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of god and supremely so towards you for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand and i hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And Father, I pray that we just take your word. These are your words breathed out by the Holy Spirit to Paul, kept and, and preserved for us this morning, that it may drive deep into good, fertile soil. And I pray now, and whether planting or watering, that you would make it to grow. Lord, help us to understand. May this transform our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. I want to share with you three things here of Paul's boast. Paul is going to boast or boast of three things three points. The first thing is you're going to see, and this is as we go through chapter one up to chapter four, is God is his witness of his faithfulness. When Paul boasts, he doesn't say, let me boast of myself. He actually used as God is my witness. I have been faithful. It's not my testimony, but God is my witness. So he uses God as his witness. As we see, as we see, as we see there, it's not by my witness or my testimony, but the witness of God. He also points out generally as we're just summarize this, he points out that any and all virtue comes from God and not himself. He recognizes that Paul himself is the rece- rece- receives the grace of God. It doesn't emanate from him. He will only boast in those things of the Lord and not his own abilities. And he does not boast to gain any personal advantages, as he echoes the words of Jeremiah in chapter 9. Thus saith the Lord, says Jeremiah, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for these are the things that i delight declares the lord and i set this up for us to understand because as soon as you and i hear boasting do you think positively about someone who boasts or negatively negatively so all of a sudden we're saying why in the world would paul be boasting that seems to be very fleshy it seems to be unlike paul and sure enough, if we go back to 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul does write, I do not boast. But yet, here we find him almost doing that. But what do you, we have to understand that there is a boasting that is godly. It's that boasting not in his wisdom, not in his riches, not in what he does and his abilities or skills, for all those come from whom? God himself, thank you. comes from God himself. It doesn't come from us. So anything that we have, right, Mike, we receive from the Lord. So anything that we boast, we boast in the Lord of what the Lord has, has us to do this. So when Paul boasts, he says, I boast in this way. But he also says, I boast for the testimony of our conscience. And I want to speak about that for a moment, because many times we have a, a, a sometimes a, a mixed bag when it comes to what is the conscience, The conscience in this context does not refer to an inner voice that urges us to do right or wrong or nags us when we do wrong, right? It's not someone who tells us right or wrong. You kind of get that picture, right? The little angel on one shoulder and the devil. You ever seen that picture? Do this, do this, and then someone who nags you on this way. That's not what your conscience really is. But it refers to that human faculty, whereby a person either approves or disproves of the actions of themselves and or others. So it's that God-given human faculty which in which we approve and disprove of ourselves and other words. In other words, it's the ability of self or critical self-evaluation, being able to look upon ourselves or others and approve or disapprove. However, as Paul says, the testimony of our own conscience, you and I must be, uh, uh, realize this important point. We must be aware of our own propensity to deceive ourselves. Many times we say, well, I have a good conscience. I'm able to approve and disapprove, and I, and I see things clearly. Well, sometimes we can, most times we don't. As Paul wrote earlier, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clear, is clean, he says. But, he says, I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, it's even though I have the ability to self-critique, just as you do, by the way, you have that ability, God's given everyone that ability. Even though in my own ability to do it, I am not acquitted. In other words, I'm not declared non-guilty. I'm not declared clean. It is the Lord, he says, who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And he will disclose the purposes of the heart. And this is the very thing that the Corinthians are doing. They're judging Paul and his suffering and his ministry. But he says, no. No. Each one will receive his condemnation from God, not by our own conscience, but by that of God. But yet we understand that God has given us the ability to approve and disprove and self-critical evaluation. So I would have to say, then, then how do we do that? Our conscience is real. We're to use it. In other words, a clear conscience is one of the benefits of salvation. First, your conscience needs to be redeemed. You can say amen. I'll do it again so you can do that. Your conscience needs to be redeemed. All right. So what that means, it needs to recognize who God is and who you are as you stand before him. Because our conscience will always seek to to put ourselves in a better light. But we need to have a conscience that's delivered from the power of Satan. Every activity that we do, everything that we should do should come with a clear conscience. We talked about that. I haven't done that here. One of these days, I've been warning that I'm going to do that, called the dating game for parents and teenagers. I have a little thing called the dating game. And in it, it says, dating, the, the, the goal of dating is to date with a clear conscience. Well, we ought to do that with all things. The way that we, in, in everything we do in word and deed, we do it hardly as the Lord, it ought to end with a clear conscience in which God is the one who can boast of us and the fact that we've pleased Him with our lives and with our minds. So Paul boasts of those three points. It's not so much in what he is, but he recognizes that God is his witness. If I don't see clearly, God is the one who's going to judge me. So he's bringing them back to mind as he says, for my boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. I now want to go to the three points of Paul's defense. And this is important as we go through there. Paul is now going to share with him, here's what you need to know about me. The way that you're treating me, the way that you're you're viewing me is not correct. And here's my defense. The first one is Paul boasts and shares with them that he acted with simplicity. He says I've acted with simplicity, or another word is singleness of purpose. I haven't had another agenda. I've only been about what God has called me to do. Some translations use, instead of simplicity, will use the word holiness. In other words, I've acted with holiness, singleness of purpose, simplicity. I'm not someone that you can hang on to me, a, 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 a motivation that is not real, that is not true. And he says, you now, and then and he's ploring them their own conscience. When you evaluate now, look through me. Have I not acted with simplicity? Have I been someone that has been murky? Have I been more ambiguous? No, he says. Not only in my testimony, but testimony of the Lord. Your own test, your own conviction or a conscience should convict you of that. The second uh, part of his defense it says he's acted with sincerity or integrity. Again, remember, they're attacking his integrity. They believe he's doing something different. They believe he's not living out what he's preaching. They're attacking his motivation. And Paul says, no, I've acted with sincerity. I've acted with integrity. And I've had a purity of motivation. You can almost imagine, again, as I shared with you before, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He goes to them. He finds out that there's trouble in the church. Those that were in the church that had wormed their way in treated him very badly. They humiliated him in front of his own children. And Paul makes a hasty retreat and then writes a severe letter back to them. There could be some of those that could question, say, wait a second, you say one thing, you do another. What's going on with your life? If you're so strong in your letters, why weren't you strong when you were here? But Paul says, listen, I've acted with integrity. I've acted with sincerity of heart. I tried to show you how much I love you. And my motivations were pure. I'm not seeking my own benefit. I'm not seeking my own exaltation. And the third thing, he reminds him of his defense and that he does not make plans or conducts his life according to ordinary worldly standards. As he says, we behave in this world with simplicity, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. In other words, he says, I don't make my plans and conduct myself by worldly wisdom, And see, that should be you and I's goal. I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but you got the point. Our goal should be the same way. You and I ought to act with sincerity and simplicity. We ought to conduct ourselves not by the world standards, but by the standards of God. And in that case, we remove ourselves from those accusations that people may attack us with. In other words, our only defense many times is a clear conscience as we stand before God and say, I seek nothing other but to the grace and glory of God. And in all of this, Paul credits the grace of God. He doesn't say, I am someone who is sim- a simple man. I am a holy man. I am a man who is, who is uh, good conduct and I'm a man of integrity. He doesn't attack, He doesn't boast of himself. He says, this is what the Lord has helped me to do. In my sufferings. He prays, I pray that you will see this as he defends himself, trying to bring it into mind and try to crack through the fog of what's going on in the Corinthians' mind. As we go on in verse 13, Paul wants them to know that he's not writing one thing and doing and acting another, as I said earlier. Paul is not ambiguous or misleading what he writes in his letters he's trying to live out in the in his life and he directs him as to read this letter as he's writing he says i want you to read this letter with the intention stated in other words quit trying to read between the lines have you ever done that Have you ever gotten an email from somebody and it may be simple it may be ordered but you're trying to find out what they mean by it you ever ever had that and you think what did they say you know, that's why it always says, never respond to an email or especially an ambiguous one very quickly. Wait a bit. Think about it. Read through it. We do that. Facebook is another one of those times. Someone writes a simple statement, but all of a sudden we're 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 setting and we're we're putting motivations and things of that nature. I have to tell you, I, I admit that I do the same thing. I do that even here. Sometimes, why is someone not here? Why did they leave early? Why don't they do this? And all of a sudden, you're you're trying to assign motivation, which may not be true. But what we need to realize is that Paul says that we can't do that. And Paul is imploring them, as he says here in verse 13, For we are not writing you anything other than what you read and understand. And I know that you're only partially understand, but please seek out to understand what I'm writing. Quit trying to read between the lines. And as you interpret what I read, quit going to these men that are seeking to humiliate me and discredit me. And that was what was happening again. They had wormed their way in, these leaders. And they were saying, look at Paul. There's no way he could be of God. They actually referred to themselves, we'll see later in 2 Corinthians, they referred to themselves as super apostles. They had this great ability in verse 14, as he tries again to remind them, he reminds them that one day they'll all stand before the Lord to give account as God will judge the motives of the heart. As Paul says, you're judging me, but you know what? There will be a time when all judgment will happen. And he recognizes and he says, listen here, you are my boast. You here, you are the proof of the pudding of my faithfulness and serving of God. In it, we get a glimpse into heaven in this verse. As we, what's going to happen in heaven? There will be one day when we'll stand before him. 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, chapter 3, he had told them that. He says, if I lay a foundation, I lay a foundation of Christ. He says, all that we do will will be judged, whether it's wood, hay, stubble, or gold, and jewels, and precious stones. He says, it will burn, and God will judge the motivation of the heart. So just as he said earlier, don't judge me by the world's standards. Judge me by the standards of God. And then if I could say anything, when you and I judge, we need to make sure that we're judging by God's standards in the way that God wants us to judge. Jesus in in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount gave us a word of wisdom. He said, with what you'll be judged, or how you judge is what, what you'll be judged. Does that make sense? Did I say it correctly? However you judge someone, that's how God will judge you. And I find myself many times thinking of that, saying, whoa, I better back down. Because I don't know about you, but I'll have to admit there are times that I have a critical spirit. My mom has given me just a little bit of skepticism. I'm going to blame her. No, I won't do that. But we're both skeptics, you know. We're both skeptics. So we need to be careful in how we judge because the way that we judge someone, God says, that's how I'll judge you. So be careful. So as we look at it, Paul is boasting. He's saying, listen, I need to reinstill in you that I, confidence in me. Don't give up on me. Don't push me away. You need to understand that, that I've been faithful to God. Yes, my life is terrible in the fact that I have a lot of physical maladies. Yes, I suffer a lot, but it's for the cause of Christ. The hand of God is on me. I feel it. I I feel it coursing through me. You are the proof of God's blessing. Not the things by the world's standards. As Paul is trying to really instill instill confidence, I can almost imagine him as he's penning these words, he's praying, Lord, let him get it. Lord, uh, help me reconcile with these people. I love them. And I can almost imagine as he's writing it, he's thinking of their names—Aquila, Priscilla, Chloe. So, and I'm making up names now, but so <laughs> don't think that I'm speaking biblical here. After Aquila and Priscilla, I couldn't think of anyone else in Corinth. But as we go through, I just—just just as a matter of thing here, just to think through. But I'm sure he's thinking of their names, and he's writing them down. And there's relationships that are strained. Now I will have to say that at this point Paul is going to get a report from Titus that says These, the Corinthians have accepted your severe letter and that has caused them to repent and they want to reconcile with you. So this is Paul's letter saying, I hear you want to reconcile with me. Well, let's do it. And he's pleading with them, my heart, understand me. So that when we come together we can put our arms around each other and say, brother and sister in Christ. This is important. What you're seeing here, and I'm going to share this, this is something that's very important, especially if you've ever thought about being in ministry. What you see here is a great dynamic of the relationship between an elder and a church. Between a pastor and his congregation. And so as you and I look at this, this is 2,000 years in the past. And we say, what do we care about some troubles in the church? Well, it has something to do with you and I today and how you and I interact and what I expect of you and you expect of me. Because I'll tell you that we've been a Corinthian church in the past. We've had some struggles. There have been some, some fights. There have been some things that have dishonored God. And our conscience have not been cleared. We need to realize that there's a relationship here. There's a dynamic that is is tender. And that is is important. So for today I want to share with you what this means for you and I today. It's that the relationship between a pastor and a church is very important. He uses words like shepherd and sheep. Or under-shepherd would be a better term and the sheep tutors and students father and children leaders and servants so for you and i to come and for our relationship to work you and i need to understand that it is a relationship it is a biblical relationship is that we need to trust each other in our life sharing we need to trust each other We need to submit as Jesus did to the Father and I need to lead with a servant's heart as Jesus did. We need to serve one another with love. We need to be careful in how we judge each other and in questioning of our motives. Mine in questioning your motives and you questioning me. We need to also be careful how we critique each other. Because I know in any life in any type of relationship those things are going to happen. And today, in today's society, we don't have super apostles, so to speak, going to other churches and trying to get between the pastor and his congregation. But we have something that's actually a little more pervasive. Today, with the internet and podcast, you today could go to any other church and, and listen to a message. You can go to John Piper, John Mark, John MacArthur. You can go to Saddleback. You can go and listen to Rick Warren. You can listen to uh, Mark Driscoll right down the street. You can go on the website and you could podcast that. And to be honest, I, I think it's good. I do that to listen to other men, and I think it's good from once in a while. But what happens is when you listen to those, there's a new term called celebrity pastors. When you listen to these big men, what happens to the small pastor? All of a sudden you start questioning, wow, look what God's doing at that church. Why isn't he doing that with him? And all of a sudden we say, well, maybe God's hand isn't on him. Well, why isn't his preaching as powerful? Why isn't he to have as much skill as that person than than that guy? Well, I, I think I like him much better. He's more entertaining. Or oh, wait a second, that man has has great uh, a skill in discerning God's word and and cutting through it. But our pastor doesn't do that. He's he's pretty simple when it comes to it. He's not as deep. See, we can have that today. And maybe some of you have, said, have had thought those very same things. I know that I have when I've said in other pastors and I listen to them. And then in the same way, I could sit and think, man, why do my people not respond the way that John MacArthur's people respond? Why don't my people get out and come to other events? Why aren't they reading God's word during the week? Why aren't they involved in small groups? See, it happens both ways. Oh, we could do more if I just had more committed people, right? But see, that's not what God has called us to do in our relationship. God has called us to trust and love and submit to each other, realizing that God has put us together. So in it, here's some things that I think that would be helpful for you and I to understand. You see, there's some dangers in a relationship with others. You may want to write this down for further reading. Luke chapter 22, verse 24 where we see the 12 disciples are all around Jesus. They've been with him for some time. And as normal as it comes with people, a dispute arose among them, it says, as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to him, and Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So in other words, in this church, here's my heart. I'm going to share with you. My desire is not to be your greatest, not to be the one that gets all the the the, the accolades and all the, the, all the glory. And I think any of you that have been here at any time for a long period of time know me enough to know that. I pray that I've tried to be that. Maybe not... Uh, Maybe imperfectly, but that's my desire. We cannot be a church where people are looking for attention and looking to be the it guy. Let me tell you, it's no fun being the it guy. I'll tell you that. But here's something that I want to share with you. I want to share two things with you, and then we're going to close. First thing for the church, turn to Hebrews chapter 13, if you would please. For you and I relationship to grow, to work. As God has called us to. This is his commandment for the church in this relationship. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account... Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Obviously, as you look at this, you can see that was not happened in the Corinthian church. That has not always happened here in this church, just reading the, 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 you know, in the past. And to be honest, every church has struggled with that. But let me share with you, you need to obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because that's what God has called us to be. And that's why I encourage you, if you have not yet joined a church, then you need, to, you need to submit to that to a church. You need to submit to a group of elders. You need to submit to, to those that are going to teach and lead and encourage you. That's what God has called you to do. So obey your leaders, submit to them for their keeping watch. And they'll give an account, the Bible says. And I know that can be difficult to do, but God says that's what he's called the church to do. But it's not just one-sided. For if you were to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, you'll see very quickly what he's called for us as an elder to do. I'd pray that you do the first. And I want to share with you, here's my commitment for the second in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, look at that first three verses. Where he says, so I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples for the flock. Let me share with you. Randy and I as your elders, confirmed by you, That's our desire and that's our commitment. That's our desire and that's our commitment. But obviously we're imperfect. We are not infallible. We are sinful humans. And there will be times where we may not do that as perfectly as we should. But here's our commitment. That if you obey and submit, that we will serve you willingly, not looking from you, from gain, but seeking to please God in all that we do. And our proud boast is that you and I, when we stand before God, and I look forward to this, as I can imagine, as we stand together, all of us will stand together. And as a body, we'll say, look at our elders, we love our elders. And I'm going to be able to turn around and say, look at my people, I love the sheep that you've given me. Thank you for the privilege of leading them. And that I will boast in you, and that you will boast in me. Let me close with this. Because you and I are both sinful and imperfect human beings, go back to Hebrews 13, and I'll promise this will be the last verse. Hebrews 13, verse 18. You can just write it down if you want to look at it. Here's the commitment I'm asking for you this week. As it says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Let's not repeat the the, the mistake of the Corinthian church, but let's just act, pray for one another, acting honorably with a clear conscience, ready to boast of each other as we stand before God. And I pray, Father, that's my commitment to the church. And I pray that our church would commit to doing so. Lord, I know there'll be times in our relationship that we may question one another, that we may critique one another, that we may judge one another in an imperfect, sinful way. And I pray, Lord, that when that happens, that that we'll each respond in a godly way in repenting, confessing, and turning in trust with you. I pray that you would strengthen our relationship. I would pray that I could instill confidence in, in the abilities that you've given. But, Lord, it's your grace. So empower me to do your work. Empower them, Lord, to follow. And, Lord, may we as a church, as your bride, may you be proud and glorified, In all that we do, God's people said, amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at faith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.